Yeah, I'm so excited about this morning because uh, Todd Priestley is, is going to share the message. And some of you know Todd. Uh, really, the best part about Todd is, is Georgia. I think everybody probably agrees with that. So, Georgia, would you wave to everybody? Yeah. Uh, he has two wonderful daughters, Autumn and Allie. And uh, Todd is a, a businessman, has been part of our church for, for many years. For a long time, Todd uh, was also a pastor. He still is a pastor because he pastors everybody around him. And uh, one thing I really like about Todd, he's just fun. He's just a lot of fun. So um, I'm really grateful for Todd. Uh, one last thing, and he's a scholar. Um, and I say this because Todd will, Todd will come up to me and tell me all these amazing historical facts about things that I'm really interested in, quote great theologians uh, to me, particularly Karl Barth, which I'm really grateful for. So um, Todd has done his homework, uh, and um, I mean that kind of on a lot of different levels. But uh, let me pray. Todd, why don't you come here? Let me pray for you and pray for us. Um, I loved uh, listening to Todd last night, and I think if it's anything like last night, it should, should be good. All right. So, Father, thank you so much for Todd. I thank you for writing your story on Todd's heart. So, God, I thank you that your dreams are always better than our dreams. And, uh, Lord, I pray now that as Todd preaches, you would bless Todd um, and us, and that together, Lord God, we would give you the glory that, that you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen. I moved your pulpit. Yeah, you did. I moved your pulpit. Thank you. <clears throat> You got a little glimpse into me and Peter's discussions about baptism night there, didn't you? Just a, just a little mild one, but anyway. Um, you know, it, it really is just a, a great privilege to be here. The only thing is, um, I have uh, a, a lot of special people here today. My dad's here. And uh, so I'm just going to stand here and cry for about six minutes if you'll let me. I have old friends and new friends, and I'm just really grateful to be here and grateful to follow Peter Hyatt. Um, that's a tall drink of water. Anybody who's listened to Peter Hyatt for any length of time knows that. And so we're just going to do our best. But uh, again, thank you so much for coming. And um, Peter always encourages me to tell my story. And so that's what I'm going to start with. And uh, we'll go from there, and hopefully we'll understand something more about God and His love for us because of my story. I was born in Las Cruces, New Mexico in 1958. I was born um, to a family that had its ups and downs, just like every family has its ups and downs. Uh, my family did have some wealth. My grandfather did pretty well, but, you know, wealth has a tendency to help and hurt. As we all know, right? It always does. It did us good, and it did us some, some other things. So, but uh, our family's very close, and I'm just very grateful for the way God has worked through all of that. And again, it's unbelievable to see my dad here and some of my other family members. But um, our family was just like yours, you know. Uh, lots of good and lots of other things, too. Uh, as a young man... And I'm going to talk now, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about my life in three segments, kind of the young Todd Priestley between 0 and 20, the Todd Priestley between 20 and 45, and the Todd Priestley between 45 and now, which is 61. My young life was pretty much what I would call a Gentile life, uh, or what I'm going to call the dream of human expression. You'll understand that more as we go along, but what I mean by that 
is it a young man? I mean, we pretty much did what we wanted to do. We had a very mild church experience. Um, you know, like a lot of American families, we went to church some, but wasn't the center of our life. And so my life as a young man was the dreams that most young men have. I mean, I dreamed of sex, drugs, rock and roll, and I participated. And so I would call that a Gentile life, or however you want to put it. But uh, I was pretty much a typical American boy up until I was 20 years old. When I was 20 years old, I was a junior in college at the University of Southern Colorado. And one night, um, I was extremely troubled by my Gentile life and pretty much knew that the, the dream of human expression was just that, or what you could call an illusion. In other words, when people just sort of selfishly run out into the world and do whatever they feel like and want to do, it's probably going to eventually end in catastrophe, both for you personally and maybe even societally. I think we're starting to see a little bit of that in the West as people have tossed God out the window and gone back to the old dream of human expression, and there's some things that are getting a little rough, I think, because of it. But I was, I was that way, too. So I began a, a, a spiritual search, and at, at our campus, we had a campus group there uh, that was from the local Church of Christ, and they were very active and uh, very aggressive and um, very serious, serious people. I'd never seen people as serious as this, especially 19, 20, 21-year-old people be as serious about church and about the gospel as these guys were. And so I, I began studying the Bible with them. And about three or four weeks later, I was baptized. And, and, you know, I did it once. Peter did it nine times. So make of that what you will. I mean, it took that much, you know. It took three shots. That's the point. But anyway... <laughs> So that last one in the Jordan we hope took, but we'll see. <laughs> but anyway, but, uh, you know, Carl Barth says this, and I will quote Carl Barth because I love him. And he says, you know, we're, when we sometimes we come out of the Gentile life, we are quite quick to leap to what I would call an adequate moral life, and that's what I thought I was doing. So what I did, really, from 20 to 45, is I pursued what I, you could call um, the dream of human righteousness. In other words, we really believed that we were going to be able to, you know, do some great things, and we did. But uh, we pursued what I would call the dream. So I went from the dream of human expression to the dream of human righteousness, which again is pretty typical for people. And really, I think you're going to see from the book of Romans, it's real typical for people, and basically the human journey, if you want to get right down to it. So but the thing is, is it did much, much good in my life and the lives of many others. We, we baptized hundreds of thousands of people all over the country. We established uh, uh, standards for marriage and attitudes about marriage that were just tremendously helpful, tremendously helpful. That's one of the main reasons that I've been married for Georgia, with Georgia for 34 years. And, um, but beyond that, in 1967, a man named Chuck Lucas down in Gainesville, Florida, established a group called Campus Advance. And what that was was uh, it was just a campus group. You know, there's a lot of campus, campus uh, crusade and et cetera, et cetera. Well, Campus Advance was the Church of Christ version of that. And so we went, they were around campuses all over the United States. We had four groups here in, here in Colorado. In 1967, Chuck Lucas at the Gainesville Church of Christ established that. And his dream, and he had a very serious dream, the dream was that we're going to go from the American campus into all the world. 
We're going to affect American campuses with the gospel. And then we're going into all the world. Well, that happened. They went on the campuses. We went into the camp. And we didn't just go on sort of the outback campuses. We went into Yale and Harvard, Cal, you know, Cal Berkeley. We converted lots and lots and lots and lots of students. And then as they grew, we caught a dream. And we started sending people out into all the world. All the world. I mean everywhere. We established churches in the Philippines. We established churches in Africa. We established churches in communist China. We established churches all over the world because we pursued that dream onto the campus and on into the rest of the world. By 2000, we had large ministries in, every, in almost every major capital in the world. We had churches in about 75% of 170 countries in the world, and we had at least a few people in 170 different countries of the world. In about 33 years, we had gone from that little dream in Gainesville, Florida, into all the world. We had literally done that. Karl Barth calls religion like that a pinnacle of humanity. It's an amazing thing when people rise up and do things like that. It's amazing what can happen, and it's a good thing. It's an amazing thing. And yet, and yet, in 2006, 40 years later, after he began that dream, that thing blew up like a train hitting concrete with rebar. I mean, it splintered and splattered, and hundreds of thousands of people were hurt, hurt, hurt. We were scattered all over the world, scattered in our hearts, didn't know what to do. George and I had left in 2003 because we kind of saw the train coming and we were just like, and we just saw some of the legalism and some of the other problems that we had. And we just, you know, we just felt like we've we've got to do some other things. Karl Barth calls this the catastrophe of human righteousness. See, I'd lived through the catastrophe of human expression, and now I'd seen the catastrophe of human righteousness. So what do you do now? Back had been broken as a, as a Gentile, and now my back had been broken as a Jew, right? As a Judeo-Christian. Well, one thing I knew for sure, one thing I knew, I didn't know a lot. I was scared to death, bewildered, everything else but I knew we needed more theology. So God quite naturally led us up to Peter Hyatt's place, but I think he'd only been baptized twice at that point, but he was still functioning okay, so. We went up to the sanctuary, and what we did up there for about two or three years is just cry a lot. We used to sit in the back and cry a lot, because Peter Hyatt talked about legalism and judgmentalism, and it blew our minds. So that's sort of the early up to 45 Todd Priestley. And right now I want to give you a brief overview of the book of Romans because it's an overview of my life. I mean, the most astounding thing about it, I mean, the book of Romans is nothing easy to read, but when I finally got to kind of see it because of Karl Barth, I said, this is just an outline of humans. (laughs) This is the outline of every man's life, and I think you'll see that more as we go. Let's pull up uh, Romans 1, verses 28 through 32. And again, this is, uh, 
This is when we're talking about the life of human expression. This was my life between age zero and age 20. And what happens kind of at the end of all that is this. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's some pretty, that's some pretty stiff words. But I saw that on the, in the dorms. University of Southern Colorado. I saw that in our lives. That's why I became a serious Christian. Karl Barth says this, The world is full of personal caprice and social unrighteousness. This is not a picture merely of Rome under the Caesars. The true nature of our unbroken existence is rolled out before us. Again, that's stiff medicine. That, again, is the catastrophe of human expression. In other words, this explains the frontier of the dream or the illusion of just pure human expression. Don't tell me I'm, I'm a sinner. Let me loose. No law. I mean, hey, let humans be humans. This is the, this is the frontier that you're going to hit right there. Karl Barth also says, well, people wanted to experience the gods of this world. Well, they've experienced them. Call Bart so subtle, you know. And I think this is the West over the last 200 years. We see a lot of this going on as people have given up on God. They've moved right in this direction. I mean, the scripture's so accurate, it's stunning. But, okay, so I became a serious Christian to come out of that catastrophe, right? So you'd think Romans chapter through 2 through Romans chapter 11 would cheer me on, right? In other words, you'd think that, okay, so we talked about that catastrophe. Now we think, because Romans 2 through 11 is talking to the church, right? Which I've been a member of for 25 years. And you'd think that it'd be like, man, we are so glad that you got out of that and you have moved into being a serious churchman. We're so happy. Well, let's look at Romans 2. We're not going to read a verse, but it, you know, in Romans 2, it starts out by saying, therefore you have no excuse, you who judge. Then it says, then it has a whole list of church sins, and of course, we, never, we ignored those, or blamed them on the Baptist down the street, or Peter or somebody else. We didn't listen to that at all. Romans 3 says, together they've become worthless with the Gentiles. You're like, together we've become worthless with the Gentiles? It says, no one is right, no one seeks God. Romans chapter 4 goes back to Abraham. He, he's lifted up as the example, and Abraham at that point is a stone-cold Gentile living just like we talked about back there. And Paul, say, and Paul says, God speaks to that man, a stone-cold Babylonian Gentile, and says, I'm going to give you a child to a man who's been childless, childless for decades, and then he says, I'm going to make you the father of all the nations. Now, what do you think the churchmen are supposed to do in that situation? 
well, what about all this hard work we're putting in over here and you're talking to the Gentiles, right? I mean, <laughs> you're giving the promise to that guy and what about us, right? Then you roll on over to Romans 5. Let's put that up, Sasha. Romans 5, verse 18, it says this. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So Romans chapter 5 essentially says you guys aren't, aren't the answer anyway. <laughs> I mean, the problem with humanity happened outside of time. The fall happened outside of time. And guess what? The solution is also outside of time. And it's not in the hands of churchmen. So this is the cheerleading section for us churchmen after having left the disaster of human expression. Then you go on over to Romans 6, and it says the resurrection is your hope, not all your work. Then it says in Romans 7, let's put that up, Sasha. Romans 7, 14 through 25, or 18 through 19, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. I don't do the good I want, but the evil I do not want, I keep on doing. Some people say that's Paul before he's a Christian. I think that's utter poppycock, and there's no way that's Paul before he's a Christian. That's Paul as a Christian. But again, and we all felt that, right? You see, that's where we were 40 years later in our movement. We were at the boundary line of the catastrophe of human righteousness. It only goes so far in this world. And then you're going to hit that wall. See? It only goes so far. This is, a, this is an expression of both a collective boundary and an individual boundary. In other words, you still, I mean, as much work as we did, as much confession as we did, as much money as we gave, as, as hard as we worked, as sincere as we were in trying to convert the world in our generation, we still came to the point where we said, I'm no better than anybody else. <laughs> right? We still sat there and said that. You know what Karl Barth says? He says, this stinking sack of sin. He said, I can't get rid of it. I can't even knock it senseless for a little while. See, that's the, that's the frontier of religion. And see, this is where men live. They live between two frontiers. The frontier of human expression over here and the frontier of religion over here. And this is where we're living, over in here somewhere. Somewhere in between here and here is where you and I live. Well, you go to Romans 8, and Paul says, well, your sufferings are going to turn into gold in eternity. Then he says, the only thing that's really important is the work of the Spirit. Then Romans 9 through 11, you might be able to take some comfort in the idea you're elected, but of course Romans 9 through 11 just explains that election is just something that happens in time and it's back and forth and it's a process that you and I don't even understand. It's beyond our comprehension and the idea that you're elected and everybody else is going to hell is a bunch of poppycock. In fact, Romans, the whole Romans 1 through the end of chapter 11 ends this way. Romans 11 in verse 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. <laughs> I mean, 
Nothing more offensive to a bunch of churchmen than that. And oh, believe me, I was offended. But the whole thing is really, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's somewhat mind-boggling. But the, the other point is that the illusion of human expression is really pretty self-evident. You see it pretty easily and pretty quickly. It takes, he, he explains that in one chapter. It takes ten to convince the churchmen <laughs> that, <laughs> that the, the dream of human righteousness might be an illusion too. It takes ten chapters to get that through our head. You know what I'm saying? Well, now what? Doggone it. Now what? What the heck do we do? Let's go on over to Romans 12. See, Jesus, he came to hand us over to God's dream. That's what Jesus did. Jesus came to deliver us over to the hands of eternity. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, which we just read about, right? And just how deep is that mercy? All are handed to disobedience that all may receive mercy. That's how deep it is. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Now, that's mistranslated. Look it up in the Greek. It says, do not be conformed to this age. Not the world, this age. Because everybody looks at that and they go, oh, well, I'm not conformed to the, the dream of the Gentiles. I'm not, I'm not conformed to the world anymore. I'm in the church. No. It says, do not be conformed to this age but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed, Karl Barth puts it this way, by the, by the reality of the coming age. And that's obviously the contrast. You see, the church is in this age too. In this age, you have those two dreams, that's what this age is all about. And you can bounce back and forth or be in the middle, but that's where you're at in this age. The illusion of human expression or the illusion of human righteousness. But he says, don't be conformed to this age, but be conformed to the coming age. Be conformed by what the train that's coming down the track from eternity. That's what we're to be conformed to. Let's look over in Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 19. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and he may send the Messiah who's been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. That's God's dream. That's what we're to conform our life to. That's a Greek word. When it says restore, notice how he says, heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything. That word restore is a word, and I'm going to mess it up again, apocatastasis. And I'm not saying it right. It took me a week just to get to that point. I'm serious, man. That's a weird word. These Greeks. I mean... Literally, I had to stand in front of the mirror and practice it. Stasis. 
puck up this, and, I'm, and finally I got it, and Peter said, no, it's still not right. He had to practice too. And he messes you up. George and I finally decided some old gr- drunk Greek in a bar came up with it. And he said, just throw an extra S, an extra T in there, and nobody will get it. Nobody will ever figure out what it is. It's apocatastasis. And what it means is to restore, to reconstitute, to reinvent, to bring it back in, to restore it. It's a powerful, beautiful word. And it says, heaven must receive him. Jesus is in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything. And he said that he promised this through the prophets. So maybe we can understand something about the coming world through the prophets, right? And maybe the point is that we, when we begin to see what God's going to do in the coming world, maybe that'll change our hearts and our behavior and our attitude. I mean, the law hadn't done a very good job, has it? You can ask me and my friends, it didn't do a great job. We, we hit the wall. You know, and human expression doesn't do it. Selfishness doesn't do it. So maybe it's something else. And maybe the prophets teach us what's coming at us, and then we can conform ourselves to that. You know, science has uh, come up with some amazing things. Peter talks a lot about science. And um, recently, I don't know how long it's been, last 10, 15, 20 years, but scientists have begun to realize that visions and dreams, that perspectives and dreams that you have are extremely important to human beings. God gives us a lot of visions, and most of the time we just kind of run through them and go back to practical living, you know what I mean? But he gives us these visions, and just now scientists are starting to understand how serious and how important it is that, that, we, get, that, we, that we do this. Because there's three parts to our brain, and they all work. In other words, there's a part that perceives things rationally, there's a part of the brain that's emotional, and there's a part of the brain that helps take something and just put it into the body and let you embody it. And it's an amazing thing. In other words, your synapses can literally realign themselves. Old things can change through visions and perspectives. Let me give you an example. Let's go back to our friend Chuck Lucas down in Gainesville, Florida, when he came up with that dream, right? And let me tell you something. If you knew the Church of Christ in 1967 and they said they're going into all the world, that was some big thinking, brother. I mean, that was some big thinking. But see, what Chuck did was he saw it with his rational mind and then he felt it emotionally. See, this part of his brain perceived the dream. This part of the brain let it sink into his emotions. And then the bottom part of his brain literally rewired it. He embodied, that dream embodied him. It went into his body. And if you were ever around that man, it went into you too, believe me. Because they'd pass it on. No kidding. And it embodied us. And that's why it happened. That's why it occurred. The dream literally changed us and embodied our bodies and came out into the world and we did exactly what that dream taught us to do. Our bodies absorbed it and we did it. Let's look over in Isaiah 65, verse 17. We're going to start now. We're going to look at three areas of dreams that God gives us in the prophets. 
about restoring everything. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. I think somebody prayed about Israel just today. And the whole battle between the Arab world and the Israel, you know, it, it's just it's just the four thousand year fight between Ishmael and, and 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 the sons of Israel. That's all it is. Isaac and Ishmael going at it like they've been doing for four thousand years. I don't make light of it, but what I'm saying is, and it's such an utter tragedy. And when we think of Jerusalem today, we don't think of this, do we? No, we don't think of this. We think of the heartache and the bloodshed and the almost insoluble problems that are in this world. And it's distressing and it's depressing and it's frustrating. And What about if, if, if we were sitting here and, and we let that sink into our rational mind, our emotions, and it embodied? How would we look at Jerusalem then? Could we listen to the news and not quite be so disturbed or discouraged? You think we could look at this and go, my goodness, this, this is God's dream for Jerusalem. And because it's God's dream, that's exactly what Jerusalem will be. When you look at Jerusalem in the book of Revelation, it will blow your mind. It's where the thousands of angels are assembled in great worship. And the gates are forever open. The kings of the earth, the most selfish people in the world, are bringing the glory of their nations in there. And it's like the size of Texas, out and up, and it's this big, beautiful thing in a, in a big, beautiful universe. What if we let that embody into us? What if we let that dream sink in? Let's go over to Jeremiah 31 and verse 33. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law in them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be my, their God, and they will be my people. A sincere churchman wants this more than anything in the world. And you know what? This is what the Gentiles want too, but they don't know it. This is what every, everybody wants. Everybody wants to be able to do what's good from the heart. Everybody, but a churchman, what, what's his most earnest dream? What was our most earnest dream as we went around the world? We just wanted to do what's right, and we wanted to help other people do what's right, and we wanted them to help other people do what's right, and we wanted to be able to serve God with joy and zeal. That's what we wanted. It says that that's what we shall be. Not in this life. This is a promise of eternity. But do you understand that that's what you're going to be? You are going to be, Peter Hyatt, despite his nine baptisms, are going to, is going to be Peter Hyatt and Jesus. Not Peter Hyatt and Adam. Peter Hyatt and Jesus. Adam's going to be burned away. What's going to be left is Peter Hyatt with G and the character of Jesus 
not the character of Adam. Your greatest dream for yourself that you've ever dreamed doesn't even come close to what we're talking about. But that's what you and I are going to be. What if, we, what if we embodied that dream? What if we meditated on that? How much did Paul meditate? David, you know, we talk about meditation, and that's how, that's how you let these things sink in. David meditated all the time. What if we let these things sunk into our brain, our, our emotions, and then our bodies? You think maybe that might make a little more difference in trying to obey the law? All right, let me ask you something. Does the name Reinhard Heydrich ring a bell? Reinhard Heydrich. Here's a picture of him. You know, those of you who know history probably know he's a Nazi. 38 years old. <coughs> Reinhard Heydrich is the real live man behind the Holocaust. This is the man that you hear of Himmler and Hitler. This is the guy who really convinced the Nazis to pursue the final solution. Not just to persecute the Jews, but to eliminate them. In other words, for the dream of Nazism, one of the prices that had to be paid was that every Jew in Europe had to be, had to be killed. And their goal was to kill 12 million, and they got six. This is the guy who was really the Holy Ghost. Hitler was the father. Himmler was the son. This is the Holy Ghost of Nazism right here, the guy you've never heard of. He was killed by Slovak um, partisans in, in uh, about 1943. But uh, you know what his nickname was? The man with the iron heart. You know who gave it to him? Adolf Hitler. Takes one to know one. The man with the iron heart. You know how much you've got you to gotta harden your heart to just sit down and say, we're going to kill 12 million folks? What do you got to do to your heart to even imagine such a thing, much less say, we're going, let's move, and embody that dream into a whole bunch of other folks, right? I mean, that takes a hardness of heart that's almost hard to imagine. But you know, it's funny. We all do this. this, is, this the world runs on this. This is just an extreme example of what the world runs on. We're going to go home tonight and watch movies that express this all the time. Bad guys die, we live. See, that's the whole thing is, you die, I live. It's funny because that's just the exact opposite of Jesus. Jesus died, you live. But us, because we have the ability to harden our hearts to such a, a degree, we, we, don't even, we don't even grasp how much this is a part of just, it's the essence of how the world runs. That people die so that others live. It happens for power, it happens for land, it happens for sex. You die, I live. You know what the Bible calls that? Those are agreements with death. That's in the book of Isaiah. He says, your agreement with death will be annulled. How long did the Nazi dream live? Twelve years. Six million people were sacrificed for a dream that lasted twelve years. Your agreement with death will be annulled. All agreements with death will be annulled. But the funny thing, we're all involved in it. Let's, uh, let's look at um, Ezekiel 36, verse 25. And I want to say something before we read this. You know, the proverb says that the heart is the wellspring of life. It's the very essence of who you are. It's the very... It's the very core of your being. It's your heart. It's the wellspring of life. 
I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. How about if we let that do a little sinking, right? What if that went into our mind and our emotions and our bodies? That that is in fact what's going to happen. That that's my destiny. That that's the destiny of every human being. That we're all going to be given new hearts because everybody needs a new heart and ain't nobody's heart any better than anybody else's. You can harden it like Reinhard Heydrich, pretty much, what, 90%, I guess, I don't know, and it can be 10%, but the degree doesn't matter. The degree's not the issue. We all have a rock in our hearts. We all accept the death of others for our own life. But eternity doesn't, doesn't operate on that principle. Eternity doesn't, doesn't, doesn't work on that idea. It doesn't work on that idea. Well, we've discussed the dream of human expression. And we've discussed the dream of human righteousness. And we've seen that they're both illusions. And we've just done a little sliver of God's dream of eternity for us. But maybe, maybe, like Romans 12 says, maybe if we meditated on these things and we thought about what's coming and we thought about what humans are going to become and what we're going to be and the difference between eternity and time, maybe we could run on that instead. Maybe we could embody those things and let those things develop and grow in those things. God's dream to restore all things. Because, you know, the thing about it is, Everything else is built on sand. This dream is not built on sand. This dream is stone-cold reality. Maybe now we understand why Ephesians says, Arise, O sleeper, and Christ will shine on you. We need to awake from the illusions of the dreams of this world and allow ourselves to be captivated and captured and encouraged by God's dreams for us and let our minds and our hearts and our bodies be transformed by the coming age. Amen. Now we're going to get a chance to spit and snort a little bit. We're going to sing a song and I'm actually going to sing with the band which might work and it might not. We'll just have to see. But it's an old song by the Ozark Mountain Daredevils called Beauty in the River, and I think it'll uh, express some of the things we just talked about. So I really appreciate Vince. Uh, you know, I, I asked him to do this a month ago. He said, sure, we're going to do it. So we're going to let it rip here and see what happens. Which one of these mics am I supposed to get, Mike? Green one. All right, great. Oh, yes.
truth in the eyes of my woman that no mortal ever knew. She lights my way like the coming of the day when the sun shines on the dew. And there's so much time for singing and so much time for words. There's so Pharisees can have fun sometimes. Um, now it's time for the communion. And, um, you know, the thing about communion is that the fact that Jesus was ransomed for us, we talk a lot about him being propitiated, which is true, but I think it's, too le it's, it's meant too legally. Propitiation that's always presented as, you know, we're standing in a courtroom, we're going to hell, and then Jesus steps in, and now we're going to heaven. Which, we don't, we're not going to have any legal problems in heaven, so I agree, okay, amen. But, but, really, I think ransom is, is more what we're talking about here. You see, Jesus knows that the fact that the dreams that we're talking about here the valley of tears comes first. The valley of tears comes first, and it drives us all crazy and makes people not believe in God, and it hurts a lot, and we're living through the great tribulation, you know? And, but that's going to create these things. We're going to know someday that there was no other way. But here's the point. Ransom means this. God did not send us through the valley of tears without saying, I'm going to. I'm going to. That's what it means to be ransomed. My ox gored you, I'm using my ox to gore you, and it hurts a lot, and guess what? It's going to hurt a lot for me too. You know? He's involved, and he had to die just like we did. But you know what that means? That means that this is so incredibly personal that we can't even imagine it. Ransom is for you personally in your sufferings in your wounds in your hurt Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed because he was ransomed he walked the walk for us and with us so let's enjoy the communion
This is Jesus' bread broken for you, body broken for you. You'd think a loaf of bread from Kroger would be not that difficult to do. Oh, am I supposed to do the Lent first? Okay, I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. You were baptized nine times, so I get to do whatever I want. Nine. Here you go. still going after it. Thanks, Dad. I love you. folks down here to join with you in prayer. And um, next week, Peter's going to be preaching on Psalm 150, which should be terrific, which is always terrific, but anyway. Um, just wanted to say, you know, you might think, well, are we supposed to dream dreams like Chuck Lucas' dream? Should we just quit? No, gosh, I, I, I thank God every day for that movement and Chuck Lucas and the dream and all of that. It's just that the dreams of eternity have to be first. That's the presupposition in life. These are the suppositions. See, and if we mix those up, we get all messed up. You see, God's dream for eternity, it, it's not going to fall apart like our dreams will. So let's put that dream first, get that in our hearts, and then we can dream probably even better for down here, right? And really make some things happen. Thank you very much for coming. It's been a great joy.